morning, everyone. It's so great to see you again after being out during most of the month of November for a study break and um, a little R&R and a four-day, four-day family reunion. As our preaching team planned for 2015, we built into the schedule a series of four consecutive messages to be preached by Pastor Patrick Garcia through the New Testament book of Galatians. So I saved my personal time off to coincide with this series that we had last month called Broken and Free. Well, it was clearly a Holy Spirit-led plan, as evidenced by your response and as evidenced by 41, count them, 41 baptisms that took place last weekend on the final weekend. And I want to personally thank and I want to publicly commend Patrick for the prayer and the thoughtful creativity and the second mile service of preparing and preaching an exceptional series of messages. So, so now we're moving into the Christmas season and the month of December is the time of year that we celebrate the coming of Jesus into our world. And celebrate we will. You've already heard about it, Christmas at Crossroads next weekend. We will have the largest orchestra and choir we have ever had on this platform. A total of 240 people will be up here leading us in worship next weekend. And it will be the perfect occasion for you to invite family and friends, for you to invite neighbors, and invite a few strangers too to visit Crossroads, believe me, believe me, most people have never experienced the inspiration like what we will experience together next week. And please keep in mind, we do have a completely different schedule next weekend. Instead of three identical services, we have five. And as Cy mentioned, seven o'clock on Friday evening, then five and seven on Saturday evening, and Sunday morning, at this time, 9 and 11. We've added another service this year, anticipating that over 6,000 will be present. Now, last year, we had a little over 5,600, and we were overcrowded. So we've added another service on Friday night, and uh, now I have a very special favor to ask. Will some of you... Consider coming to church on Friday evening next weekend or one of those two services on Saturday so we can accommodate our many guests and the crowd for our Sunday morning services, the two services Sunday morning next week. If it can work for you, I want to ask you to consider doing that next weekend only. Well, today... And continuing through the month of December, we'll be living in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the geographical heart of the Bible, as together we look at the snapshots of Jesus. Now, I imagine that more pictures are taken during the months of November and December than at any other time of the year, don't you? Thanksgiving and Christmas are just traditionally the season when families plan reunions, friends plan get-togethers, co-workers plan parties, and one of the things that always accompanies the holiday gatherings is snapshots. And of course now, anyone 
who carries a cell phone is also carrying a camera. So there have to be more pictures being taken now than ever before. And they're seen by more people than ever. Since many of them are posted on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat. And here's what it looks like from uh, the Idleman's last weekend. Got a few pictures up there. Uh, the top right there, you, you see the overstuffed turkey in the foreground. And uh, there's some family. Then on the right, we have uh, Kyle and Desi and their family. And then there's kind of a zany picture down at the bottom where we let everybody kind of cut up and show their real true personalities. I don't know whether we have any more or not. But yeah, there up on the upper left hand is our daughter, younger daughter Camille, her husband Matt, and their three girls. And then upper right there, Brian and Carissa and their four. And then there's the Thanksgiving feast. So that was uh, last weekend for the Idlemans. Now, one of the things I enjoy about checking my wife's Facebook account and, uh, and looking online is I get to see some of your pictures. And I really enjoy looking at snapshots. I enjoy looking at pictures. My guess is you do too. We love to see how other people age, don't we? <laughs> we love to see how they change as they progress through life. That's kind of what we're going to do during this month of December, this series in the life of Christ. Today, I want to talk to you about, about Jesus' family of origin. And then next week, Christmas at Crossroads, we'll focus on Jesus as an infant. Then the following weekend, Jesus as a child. And then on Christmas Eve, Jesus as a man. And then the last weekend of the calendar year, Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now in our Lord's family of origin, only a half a dozen names are mentioned in Scripture, and they are these. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, and his younger brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, and then there is a reference to his sisters, but they are not named. Now, what I want us to do today is to look closely at the snapshot we have, the picture we have of these family members, and discover the ways in which we can identify with them, discover the ways in which we can imitate their faith. Let's start this morning with Mary. Now, it was just, it was just a year ago that 22 of us from Crossroads were in Rome, Italy, where, believe me, they make far too much of Mary, even to the point of seeming to elevate her to the status of deity. Her image in statuary and portraiture are located in the cathedrals, and they are as prominent and as prevalent as Jesus himself. She is sometimes referred to as the mother of God or as queen of the universe. And I suppose there is a sense in which the former is true. That is, Mary is the mother of Jesus, and Jesus is God. But I think the implication in mother of God is that she existed before God, that God himself owes his existence to Mary. And of course, that is not true. She's never referred to in Scripture as a queen, let alone queen of the universe. In fact, she is a young, very unpretentious peasant girl 
as we'll see in the text of Luke. So I think ascribing to her such a lofty title actually takes away from her Christ-like humility. Well, furthermore, the practice of reciting the Hail Mary in Catholicism is undeniably praying to Mary. Look at the words. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed Art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Now, lighting a candle and praying to Mary, through Mary, may be a common practice by some, but it is certainly without precedent, and it is without precept in Scripture. But while some make too much of Mary, I wonder if some of us might err on the side of making too little of Mary. According to the angelic messenger in Luke chapter 2, she is highly favored. So let me lift out of God's word the things that we should commend and the things we should imitate from Mary's life. First of all, Mary was virtuous. In Luke chapter 1 verse 26, It says, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel said to her, you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. Now it seems to me that the Bible goes to quite a bit of trouble here in just a few verses to assert Mary's virtue. She was a sexually pure teenage girl who was engaged to Joseph, the man she eventually married. Virtue is a word that means behavior showing high moral standards. Synonyms are words like respectability, dignity, nobility, integrity, and Mary had it. She had it as a young woman. But in the mainstream today, virtue <laughs> virtue is scorned. It is considered to be naive, simple-minded, even laughable and pathetic. This past week there were stories in the rag mags, if you know what I mean, about 28-year-old Christian and former pro football player, now commentator Tim Tebow. Supposedly, Olivia Culpo, a former Miss Universe, dumped him because of his pledge to remain sexually pure until marriage. Now, there's just one problem here. Tim Tebow has, in fact, never had a single date with Miss Culpo, according to both of them. It's a fabrication. But what's sad is the way the media took a lie and used it. They they took a made-up story and used it to make light of Tim Tebow's virtue. Now, his commitment to virginity is true, but being linked romantically to well-known, loose-living women, not true. 
The prophet Isaiah spoke in his day about those who call evil good and good evil, and that's where we are today when the media fawns all over an amoral soul like Charlie Sheen and then makes fun of someone virtuous like Tim Tebow. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, was virtuous. In fact, Catholicism holds that Mary was a perpetual virgin. That is, she was a virgin all of her life. But Matthew chapter 1, verse 25 states this about her husband, Joseph. It says, but he had no union with her, Mary, until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. And as we'll learn in a few moments, we'll learn about Jesus' brothers and sisters from another passage in Matthew. These are the biological children of Mary and Joseph. So what else about Mary then? Well, she was virtuous. She was also submissive. Luke chapter 1, verse 38. She said, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then later, as she began her song of praise to the Lord, in Luke chapter 1, verse 46 she said these words, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. You know, the first recorded words of Mary were spoken at the feet of an angel, and her description of herself is that she is a lowly servant girl. And there's no shame in her words. It's just a matter-of-fact statement. She's not from a privileged family. She wasn't born with a silver spoon in her mouth. And I, for one, love her matter-of-fact, shameless humility. Because I believe that submissiveness is the character trait that God desires most to see in every single one of us. Submissiveness. More than anything else. But in contrast, have you noticed? Have you noticed? that we are in a run-up to a presidential election year here in 2016? I'm sure you have. And have you also noticed that the whole process has become unapologetically affirming of pride and arrogance? The leading candidates right now are, with just a few exceptions, notoriously bent on self-projection and self-congratulation and slander and intimidation of political adversaries is the order of the day. And digging up your opponent's dirt from 20, 30 years ago is a common practice. Now, thankfully, there are some exceptions. Can I tell you about one? Just across the river here. Matt Bevan is now, as of the last election, is now governor-elect for the state of Kentucky. And he is a deeply committed Christ follower. He is a faithful member of Southeast Christian Church in Louisville. A few years back, his family endowed the Center for Global Missions at Southern Seminary in honor of his daughter, Brittany, the oldest of his 10 children who died in a car accident at age 17, only weeks after returning to the States from a mission trip to Romania. Our son Kyle conducted her funeral and he read a prayer that Brittany had recorded in her journal the night before she died. And the prayer emphasized her heart.
for the lost and the downtrodden. And here's what she wrote in her journal. This is what she said to God the night before she died. I pray that you would place broken-hearted people in my path and fill me with your love so your love can heal their pain. Now that kind of humility in the head and heart of a 17-year-old girl, I'm telling you, it's rare. And where did she get it? Well, in part from her father who conducted a squeaky clean campaign against Jack Conway, winning by a landslide, demonstrating that you can run on your record and you don't have to buy TV time to try to discredit and malign your opponent. Well, Mary was not only virtuous, not only submissive, but she was also very thoughtful. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 19. It says, But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Now, in spite of the combination of shock and wonder of an angelic visitation and the normal anxiety of a first pregnancy and concern over Joseph's reaction to the news that she was with child and the imposition of shame by the villagers and the burden of taxation by Rome and the hard journey to Bethlehem in her ninth month, can you imagine the discomfort, the fear, the pain of delivering her baby in a manger in a barn? And then to have an in inconvenient, untimely visitation by a bunch of strange shepherds. <laughs> Still, Mary treasured the experience and she pondered all these things in her heart. The same expression is used in Luke 2.51. This is after Jesus was presented to Simeon and Anna in the temple. And years later, when Jesus was found in the temple as a 12-year-old with the teachers of the law, listening to them and asking them questions, it says there in Luke 2.51, his mother treasured all these things in her heart. You know what that verse tells me? Repeated those two times, those two occasions. It tells me that as a mother... Mary is in the moment. She is unselfishly in the moment with Jesus. She's a deep person. She was not scattered. She was not harried. She was not superficial. She was focused on what was most important that was happening in the life of her son. And in this age of electronics, it is so easy, isn't it, to be preoccupied with the superficial? You talk about information overload, oh, we have got it today. We've got innumerable apps for our cell phones, books, magazines, newspapers, blogs, podcasts. My friends, this little gadget right here, I believe, is God's chief competition for our attention God's chief competition for our affection today. Screens. Screens are draining away our time from the presence of God. Screens drain away our interest in the Word of God. This is the contemporary idol that distracts us from becoming deeper, more thoughtful people. Now, does it have a good side? Absolutely it does. Do you know outside the Bible, this is my greatest resource for preparing messages. 
Because if I can remember just a part of a lyric in a song or a line from a poem or the title of a book or an author, and I can plug in information and it's right there. I use it every day as a reference. I used to stand in front of rows of books and try to think, okay, now where was that? Was it in this book or that book? And then what chapter? What page? Now, I just ask Siri. Now, I have changed Siri's name. Uh, I mean, I've changed her gender. Uh, She used to be a, a woman, and you can get this in a man's voice. And somehow, I'd rather be told what to do by another man than by Siri. Kind of a chauvinist that way. <laughs> so I'm telling you, there is an up, upside. It does have a good side. So here's what I'm saying. I'm saying you control it, or it will, it will control you. It'll take control of your eyes. It'll take control of your mind. It'll take control of your time. It'll take control of your life. Well, we got to move from the mama to the papa here in Jesus' family of origin. We talked about Mary. Let's talk a little bit about Joseph. God chose Joseph to be the earthly father of Jesus. The Bible does not reveal very much about Joseph, not much detail there. Most everything we know about him is actually in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. But we can discern that Joseph was an excellent role model and mentor to Jesus. He passed on to Jesus his carpentry trade, and he trained his son and raised him in the faith. But what specifically do we see in Joseph that would be worthy of our commendation? What do we see in Joseph that would be worthy of our imitation? Let me just give you two things. First of all, Joseph was righteous. Matthew chapter 1, verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Boom, just like that. Unquestioned obedience. Joseph was obedient to the angelic messenger who came to him in a dream and said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And he got up the next morning. It's the first thing he did. And it happened again later when the angel warned Joseph in a dream to take Mary and Jesus and escape to Egypt in Matthew chapter 2, verse 14. So he got up. He took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. Boom. He didn't even wait. For the light of a new day, he moved out immediately. It was still dark out. It was the middle of the night. But he'd been told, and he was protective of his family, and he didn't let any grass grow under his feet when it came to obedience. He's that kind of a man. Later in another dream, when Joseph was told by an angel that Herod had died and it was safe to return to Israel, he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to Nazareth. This is what you see in Joseph. He always does the right thing. Even when it's inconvenient, even when it demands self-sacrifice, he is consistently, he is immediately obedient. I see this man as uncomplicated. I see this man as clear-headed. I see him as a righteous man of God, a black and white kind of guy. But he was not only righteous, he's also kind. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. Because Joseph was a righteous man and did not want to expose her, that is Mary, to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. 
Now, you know the timing on this. Mary was found to be with child before, before Joseph had the visitation from the angel. So he could only conclude that she had betrayed him during their engagement because he knew that the child was not his. And Mary's presumed unfaithfulness carried grave social consequences under the law. She could have been put to death by stoning. Even so, Joseph does not react with anger. He does not react with resentment. He does not react with a spirit of retaliation. He's not even going to shame her to protect his own reputation. Rather, he would quietly break off their relationship. I'm telling you, he's a very considerate man. He's a very sensitive man. And perhaps it is this noble quality that made him God's choice for the Messiah's earthly father. Righteousness and kindness. Men, are you listening this morning? This is the challenge to all of us from Joseph, the father of Jesus. You want to be the total package? Here it is. Righteousness and kindness. This is it. Well, finally, what about the brothers and sisters of Jesus? Or should I say here, the half-brothers and the half-sisters of Jesus because they all shared Mary as a mother. But Jesus, the eldest brother, was not Joseph's biological son. So what about his brothers and sisters? Well, the younger siblings of Jesus in this snapshot of the family of origin, the younger siblings are mentioned in passing only three times in Scripture. The first time, the first time they're mentioned, they had come after Jesus, probably to rescue him from the press of the crowd, or they might have come to kind of censor him because at the time he was openly confronting the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside waiting to speak to him. Now the second time they're mentioned, Jesus was teaching in his hometown when the crowd there took offense at him, questioning his authority. And in Matthew 13, 55 and 6, they said, isn't this a carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, Jude, aren't they all here? Aren't his sisters with us? You see, they were trying to humanize Jesus so they didn't have to pay any attention to him. They were trying to discredit who he was so they didn't need to listen to him. There seems to be some good internal evidence that shows that Jesus' younger brothers and sisters even did not relate to him as the Son of God, the only Savior and Lord, until after the resurrection. Apparently, they were not in the crowd with their mother Mary at the crucifixion, you would have thought that they would have been there with their mother at the crucifixion. They weren't there. But they were present with the disciples after the ascension when he was taken up into heaven before their eyes. Acts chapter 1 verse 14 records it. They, that is his disciples, all joined together constantly in prayer. This was after the ascension along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. 
And then, of course, in the New Testament, the epistles of James and Jude in the New Testament document their devotion to Jesus. James 1, 1 begins with the words, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's James linking God the Father and Jesus the Son. And he makes no discrimination. I am a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that title, Lord, kurios, in the Greek, is a word that indicates deity. In Jude chapter 1, Jude begins with these words. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. So do you get the significance of their words, these half-brothers of Jesus? Although they probably had some misgivings about Jesus being God in flesh, you know what turned them around? The resurrection and the ascension. Those were undeniable proof. Listen, if somebody predicts that he'll be put to death, be buried and rise from the dead on the third day, and then he follows through and does it, that means absolutely everything he ever said is true. And the most important thing in the world is getting to know him. And if you're standing on a mountain and you see someone lift off of Mother Earth into the heavens, disappearing in the clouds, if you had any doubts, you'd cross the line. So James calls Jesus his Lord, and Jude calls himself a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Mary, Joseph, and the brothers and sisters of Jesus all united in their devotion to him as Savior and Lord. Jesus united his family of origin forever. And listen, he can unite your family today. My guess is that I'm talking to some husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters who are not united in devotion to Jesus as Savior and Lord. The most important decision you will make in your life is the decision to be together with Jesus in heaven one day. And you do know it can happen today. You make a decision that will unite your family. Maybe you've not yet been convinced that Jesus is God. Maybe you have put this decision off so many times in the past that you've just found it easier to set it aside, live around it. Or maybe it's pride. For you, just the thought of humbling yourself to repent of your sins, the thought of submitting to baptism is just too much. I can tell you this. I'd, I don't want my family going to heaven without me. I would not want to be the holdout when it comes to uniting my family in faith. That could happen today. Today you need only to remain seated after the service as others file out. We will look for you, we'll see you, we'll find you, we'll come and talk with you, counsel with you about a decision you might want to make for Christ or Crossroads. If you have a need for a prayer partnership about some matter, we are anxious to have those one-on-one -on -one opportunities with you 
after the service. You just remain seated and we will come to you. Will you stand with me for prayer? Lord God, I thank you that you validated the family by sending Jesus as a baby to be born and to live through life passages with a mother and father and brothers and sisters and just thank you Lord life is just made complicated so often by so many and it's just such a simple beautiful thing what you've done to seek us and to save us and to bring us to yourself and to unite our families in faith and in hope and in joy that lasts all year long and will stretch into the greater life we thank you we pray for those this morning who have decisions that they may know in their heart of hearts they need to make. Give them courage, Lord. Give them encouragement, we pray. From even being here today, in this season, in Jesus' name, amen.